0: Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be reading in just a moment verses uh, 12 through uh, 17. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I don't normally bring something to drink in the pulpit, but I've got this tickle in my throat, and spice tea is the best thing for it. So, hope you'll indulge me. Um, but Hebrews 12 begins with this call to run with endurance the race of faith that God has set out before us. And as we encounter hardships and trials, we're to regard those trials as discipline coming from a loving Heavenly Father whom the Lord loves. He disciplines so that we might share in His holiness. And because that's the case, He tells us that we're to lift our drooping hands. We're to strengthen our weak knees. The point being, don't lose heart, but rather persevere. Persevere. Resolved to persevere by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, what exactly does that look like? And he gives us some good starting introduction, uh, 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 direction on how to strengthen those feeble hands and those weak knees. Please follow as I read Hebrews 12, I'll begin again in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it. With tears. This is God's word for us. <laughs> well, as we as we work our way through this call, strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, I have four basic questions I want us to ask and hopefully answer. First of all, what is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? The holiness to which we are commanded is to strive. Secondly, what does it mean to strive for holiness? And thirdly, who needs to strive? For holiness. I think that's a, an important question for us to consider. Who needs to strive for holiness? And then finally, how important is it that we strive for holiness? So please follow, first of all, what is the holiness we're commanded for which we're commanded to strive? The, the word holy, holiness, the, the root meaning is to be set apart. It means separate. And as a result, devoted to the Lord. God is holy. He's utterly set apart, distinct from his creation. And so, those temple furnishings in the Old Testament were holy. They were consecrated holy unto the Lord, meaning they were set apart for the temple worship and the service in the temple or the tabernacle, and they were not to be used for common purposes. The priestly garments were not to be worn out on Friday night on the town. They were to be reserved for the temple service alone. Holiness Implies purity. Look at verse 16. Uh, this, this striving for holiness involves, l- see that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. So, in First Thessalonians 4, it says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And then he says, for example, that you abstain from sexual impurity. So, this, this word, holy, means it's separate, it's set apart from anything that's impure, anything that is vile or sinful. Or, again, back to the root, anything that is common. So, it means set apart from some things, but utterly devoted to God and to godliness. So, holiness for the believer really involves devotion of your entire life and your entire being to the Lord. Now, the Greek word translated holiness is also translated in other places, Sanctification. In First Thessalonians 4, 3, which I referred to a moment ago, uh, ESV translates it, this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness. So we could translate uh, rightly this uh, verse 14, strive for the peace, strive for peace with everyone and for the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, you know what sanctification is, right? It's that lifelong process by which every Christian is growing, <clears throat> growing in grace. When God first graciously calls us to Himself, He gives us the new birth. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He makes us alive in Christ. And the response to that, just like a, a, a body that is uh, in, in the emergency room when they code and they resuscitate them, they, they do CPR and, and they uh, maybe use the paddles and the person comes to life and two things inevitably happen. He breathes and his heart starts beating. Those are inevitable results of being resuscitated. So when we uh, experience the new birth and we pass from death to life, two things inevitably happen. We repent of our sins and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those are inevitable because they're gifts from God. It's like breathing in the life of the Christian. Now, at that moment, at that very instant, as soon as we have been born again, we've repented, we've put our faith and trust in Christ— something glorious happens. We are declared righteous in His sight. We are justified. We receive the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our lives before God. We are viewed, as Pastor Mark spoke about this morning, we're viewed as perfectly righteous. We receive all the benefits of His righteousness. He receives in Himself all of the punishment for our sin. Now, justification is immediate, and it's complete. The very moment you believe, the hymn hymn writer says that uh, uh, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. We are immediately justified, and you can never, ever be any more justified than you were the very moment you were converted. That's an amazing thing to think about. It is complete. It is once and for all. But you're not yet perfect, In practice, right? Before the Lord, we're viewed as righteous and perfect. But in reality, in terms of our daily lives and our practice and habits, we still have all kinds of challenges. The presence of sin and the habits of sin and the effects of sin are still very real in our lives. And so, we are beginning this lifelong process of putting sin to death, of being conformed more and more to the image of our Savior, the holy character of our Lord Jesus Romans 8:29 says that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that being Jesus Christ. Our Catechism asks the question, What is sanctification? Uh, and here's the answer: Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So, the first thing, is three things it says that encompass uh, sanctification. First of all, we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God. We're born again. We we pass from death to life. We're given a new heart. As Pastor Mark said this morning, that heart of stone is taken away, and we receive a heart of flesh where His law is placed upon our hearts. And our hearts are now inclined to want to please the Lord. New inclinations, new affections, new desires. There's a, a uh, A holy hatred for sin. We don't love sin as much as we ought to. Excuse me, we don't hate sin as much as we ought to. But that seed of hatred is there in every true believer. We don't love God as much as we ought to, but that seed of love is there in every true believer. So he's given us these new inclinations because he has renewed us in the whole person after the image of God. Secondly, it says we are enabled more and more to die unto sin. Now, I, I would actually modify that second statement just a bit because I don't see anything in the Bible telling us put sin to death. Rather, it says we have died, or excuse me, that uh, yeah, we have died to sin. Past tense, accomplished fact. Sin shall no longer be your master because you have died to sin. And verse 11 in Romans 6 says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't tell us to, uh, to, uh, to uh, die unto sin. It's to consider that we are dead to sin, which means we're no longer unbondage to sin. It is no longer our master, and yet we recognize sin is still very much alive and active in our hearts. It's like it's received this fatal blow; it's in the death throes, and it's not going easily. The power of sin's been broken, and yet that desire, that 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 uh, that influence, still is strong in us. At times, we feel a tug of temptation, and we just wish it go away. That's what Romans 7 is all about. It's a holy war. The things I don't want to do, sin, I keep on doing. The things I, I want to do, righteousness, obedience, loving God with all my heart, I, I fail to do. Wretched man, from who, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So the command in Romans 6 and other places is to put sin to death. Colossians 3 verse 5, Paul tells us, put to death whatever is earthly in you. And then he goes on a list of various sins. We are to slay in our person. And all this leads to what we call the doctrine of mortification, the practice, mortify, to kill. We are to kill sin. It's an active determination to kill it. Uh, John Owen is famously quoted as saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So, sanctification is this process, it's this grace of God where we are enabled more and more to put sin to death. If you look back at Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says we're to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And so the reality is we are to lay it aside. We're to throw it off, cast it off, put it to death. And if you look back over the course of your life, you should be able to see real and observable progress in your battle against sin. Sins that once dominated your life should have been Overcome, or at least minimized, diminished. There are some besetting sins we wrestle with, at least the temptation for a very long time and maybe our entire lives, but we don't have to be dominated by any of our sins. And we should not. Sin, Paul says, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. You died to sin. But here's the challenge. Even though sin ought to have less and less influence in your life, the more you the longer you live for the Lord Jesus, the more you grow in grace, and the more, the more uh, you grow in sanctification. The remaining sin stands out more, uh, more brightly. I have often used a, 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 a gray piece of paper and a white piece of paper. Each, each one has a, a, a black dot in the middle. Where does the black dot stand out more? It's in the gr- in the white piece of paper, because by contrast, it shows up more. More clearly. And in the same way, as you grow in holiness, even though uh, sin is diminished, the remaining sin looks more grievous and jumps out at you even more. And you may even feel like, I haven't made any progress at all. You can make great progress in sanctification and yet feel like you've made very little. But I want you to see the Holy Spirit enables us to put sin to death. He enables us to make progress in this process of sanctification. The catechism, when it speaks of justification, says justification is an act of God's free grace. That word act emphasizes, number one, God does it, and number two, it's instantaneous. When it says sanctification is a work of God's free grace, it's very intentional. By work, they mean two things. Number one, it's ongoing. It's a process. And number two, it's cooperative. Justification, we say, is Monergistic. It's all of God. He justifies us freely by the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I receive it as a gift. We're passive in that transaction. But sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is a gift, but it is a gift that we are to labor and cooperate with the Lord in taking upon ourselves. In, in Philippians 2, it says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good purpose. There is a cooperation going on in this process of sanctification. Now, it says that we are enabled more and more to, and I will say, uh, regard ourselves as dead to sin or to put sin to death. But then also, we're enabled more and more to live under righteousness. Holiness is not just about the things that you and I don't do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. Uh, you've heard that probably before. So what? Right? It means nothing. Uh, it's also not just simply following a list of man-made rules. That's legalism. Holiness does seek to obey God's revealed law. It does seek to please God in every way that he has made clear that he is pleased. But holiness, sanctification is active. It's a a practical obedience to his revealed will. It's more than that. It's living unto God. It's drawing near to God. It's, it's, It's enjoying fellowship and communion with God. It's bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is reflective of the character of Jesus Christ. It's reflecting the humility of Jesus Christ. I know some very moral people. They're very moral and very upright, and they are proud of it. But true Godliness, true sanctification, true holiness is humble, like Jesus is humble. Brian Borgman, preaching on this text, made this statement. He said, Holiness will always include morality, but morality is not the same as holiness. Being moral doesn't make you holy. There are a lot of people who are outwardly moral, but they're not converted. So, sanctification is more than outward obedience, but it's not less. Sanctification involves obedience, but involves so much more. It's being holy, devoted, heart and soul, hands and feet, mind, mouth to the Lord. So what does it mean when he says strive for holiness? This is a second major point. What does it mean, strive for holiness? Now, again, I said a moment ago, justification is something that is accomplished entirely by God. It is monergistic. Mono means one, erg, it's work. One person does the work. You and I are passive in the reception of that which God has accomplished on our part for Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. It's an act of God's free grace. But sanctification is a cooperative effort, it is synergistic as it were. That means we are cooperating. Now, all the efforts in the world on your behalf aren't going to make you one bit more holy apart from the energizing and enabling work, enlivening work of the Holy Spirit. But he's not going to zap you and make you instantly holy. He tells you to strive. He tells you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He tells you to run with endurance, the race marked out before you. It's impossible to grow in holiness without the enabling grace of God. We have to actively put sin to death. We have to actively pursue after godliness. We can't do that on our own, but we have to do it. Paul says you're to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you're to clothe yourself with what I call the garments of godliness, humility and Christlikeness and love and patience and all the rest that you find in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3. You know, the Bible never tells you and me to strive for justification. That's already happened. It's already complete. You cannot be any more justified than you were the moment you were converted. But we must strive every day to grow in holiness. Now, this word holiness, sanctification, it involves it, it means to be set apart, devoted to God, and involves dedication of your entire life, your entire person to the Lord. Remember the holy furnishings in the temple. They were to be used in the temple for the service of God and for nothing else. The holy Christian is set apart unto the Lord. Remember, Paul tells us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. Therefore, we're to glorify God with our bodies. That's true of our minds. That's true of our hands, our feet, our, our lips. Everything should be to the glory of our God which means it has a very practical outworking. Holiness can never be selective. You can never say, well, I'll be holy in these areas, in this part of the temple, but there's a couple of rooms over here that I'll reserve to do what I want to do. Uh, that selective obedience is actually selective disobedience. It's selective rebellion. Our entire bodies, our souls, our lives, are temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we must be holy under the Lord. Now, let's all be very, very honest here. We all, we're, not, we're family. We know each other. We know we'll have a long way to go. Uh, I, uh, I have said many times, and I've heard a few of you quote this back to me, that we're half-baked. We're semi-sanctified. We're in the process of sanctification, but we're not done yet. Now, if you're really paying attention, you are going to be keenly aware of some areas in your own heart and life in which you need to grow. I should be as well. And we may even get discouraged because it seems like the progress is just painstakingly slow. But the question is not are you as holy as you had hoped you would be? Are you as holy as you ought to be? That's not the most important question. The important question is are you longing to be more holy than you are now? That really is a better barometer. Is there a longing, a yearning in your heart to be more holy than you are now? In his book, Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges says this, if there is not at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to the Lord, we need to seriously question if our faith in Christ is genuine. Maybe the progress isn't as far along as we'd like to see it, but is there a yearning, a longing, a sincere desire to be holy? You hear this message and you go, I want that. Oh God, help me to become more like Jesus. That's an indication that God is at work in your heart. So the striving to, for holiness, is it's the orientation of your life and the exertion of your effort toward that goal. If you've ever been to a large airport, Greenville's not a big enough airport for this, but you go to the big airports, Atlanta, and, and you find these moving sidewalks. You ever been on a moving sidewalk? They're great, right? You're going long distances, you step onto that sidewalk, and you can stop, and you're still moving. But if you keep walking, it seems like you're running, Right? Now, wouldn't it be great if our progress in sanctification were like a moving sidewalk that takes very little effort to go a long way, that just a little effort yields great progress? Well, the reality is the world that we live in is no friend to grace. We have to contend with the world, but we also have to contend with our own flesh and with the devil himself, who is our enemy and adversary. And so we have to run the race marked out for us against the grain, as it were. We're swimming upstream. It's like you're walking the wrong direction on a moving sidewalk. If you stop, you lose ground. It takes real exertion in order to actually make progress, putting sin to death. It doesn't die easily employing the means of grace to put on these garments of godliness that God has provided for us. It means intentionally and deliberately cultivating the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm not gentle enough. I need to focus on that. Lord, help me be more gentle in my interactions with other people. I'm not loving the way I ought to be. Lord, help me to be intentionally loving. Help me to be patient with people, with this particular person. There should be an intentionality about seeking to clothe ourselves with these garments of godliness. That's, that's why the, the author of Hebrews tells us to strive for holiness, to diligently, actively pursue it, determine that you are going to lay hold of it. You're going to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of you. Let me ask you, are you striving to grow in godliness? 2 Timothy 2.22 is an important verse. Every Christian should memorize this. Most guys use it to think about wrestling with lust, but it's any kind of youthful passion, any kind of sinful desire. It says flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You cannot run fast enough to outrun your desires if that's all you're trying to do. You have to flee from the evil, the passions, the sinful desires, but you also have to actively pursue those garments, those activities of righteousness. So, I'm to ask you in the secret place of your heart. When nobody's looking, are you diligently pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Are you coming alongside others because it's actually a community project? Pursuing righteousness, faith, and peace along with others in fellowship with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A practical righteousness, not simply being declared righteous in Jesus, but actually living righteously along with faith and love and peace. Now, we would all love, I think, to find a magic formula that would somehow zap us into victorious Christian living. There are all kinds of theories that abound. If you get this, this second baptism, if you get this, this, attend this uh, power uh, encounter conference, if you get this uh, formula of repentance or whatever it might be, then you will be instantly propelled into spiritual hyperspace. And all of the struggles and the hardships of the holy war will be behind you, and you will float along effortlessly in your walk with God. That is bondage, because it's not true. Oh, that the Christian life could be that easy. It will be in heaven. But in this world, we're at war. Early in my Christian life, I was influenced by some of this deeper life teaching. And I agonized over, why is this process of sanctification so difficult in me? Why does my heart not want to read my Bible more, want to fellowship with God more, want to overcome sin more? Why is it so difficult? Why do I have to contend with myself and my own heart? Why am I prone to wander? Why am I prone to leave the God I love? I found deliverance from this confusion in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. When, I, when Paul made it very clear that that's a, a false expectation in this life, that we're to gird up our loins, we're to, to do war, we're to, uh, to regard, consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, but involves effort. It involves thinking, no longer regarding yourselves as under the bondage of sin, but considering that now I am alive in Christ, I'm united with him, and yet, we go to chapter 7, and you see there's still a war going on. So, it's a holy war, and you and I have to fight it. We don't fight it alone. We fight it in God's strength. It's God at work in you, to will and to do according to his good purpose. And he gives us the armor of God, but we have to put it on. Take up the armor of God. So that when the evil day comes, you might stand, stand your ground against him. And Paul goes on and talks about the various pieces of that spiritual armor that God has provided for us. God is not going to just envelop us, put a hedge around me and protect me from Satan's temptations. He's given us the tools that we need to stand firm against the enemy, and he will enliven those tools and enable us if we are minded to do so. But you and I must strive. We must strive for sanctification. We must strive for holiness. The gospel is not simply a gospel of justification. It's also a gospel of sanctification. And so, striving for godliness means we preach the gospel to ourselves, we apply it, we put it into practice every single day. It means we employ the regular means of grace that God has given to us. We trust God to bless as you gather for worship, as you attend the preaching and sing together and pray together, and believe that God is going to bless that—that that He's going to bless your reading of His Word, your private prayer, your corporate prayer with God's people—that He is going to bless you when you give. Is reading in Second uh, Corinthians eight where Paul speaks of the generosity of the Macedonian believers. Out of the great poverty, they pled with him, please allow us to give generously to those saints who need it, even though they were in poverty themselves. And that generosity, that giving was a means of grace by which they grew in greater faith in the Lord. And serving and employing your spiritual gifts, all of these are regular ordinary means of grace. You don't need some dramatic, mystical experience. You don't need some sensational uh, 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 zap from the Lord. Now, does God come and meet with us in unique and special ways from time to time in our lives? Yes. You might call it revival. You might call it personal revival. There are all kinds of things… But, uh, but yes, he does do significant things in some of our lives at various times, and sometimes more than once. I remember Errol Holtz, who was the uh, leader of the International Fellowship of Reformed Baptists, and he said, oh, I definitely believe in the second baptism, or the second blessing, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. Realizing that at various points in our lives, God does do unusual things to give us a greater measure of encouragement, but the ordinary Experience of our day in and day out to strive, pursue in order to lay hold of holiness. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, He is sufficient to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to strive for holiness with the means that God has given to us. Now, let me ask you this question Who is it that needs to strive for holiness? The shorter answer is every Christian. Every believer in Jesus Christ needs to strive after sanctification, but we all face particular struggles at various points in our lives. Teens, young people. If you're a Christian and you're a teenager, you need to strive for holiness. That needs to be a priority in your life. Now every natural instinct is telling you fit in. Don't stand out. Don't stick out and be different. Don't be odd, Conform to everybody else, and just kind of go with the flow. Popularity is the name of the game, right? Well, the gospel calls you not to be popular, but to strive to be holy. That doesn't mean you have to be weird, but it does mean you're going to be different. You're going to be different in how you speak. You're not going to be ragging about mom and dad or about your teachers or others in authority. You're going to actually show respect and honor. You're going to have a different attitude toward your work, toward, uh, toward uh, your responsibilities. You're not going to be grumbling and complaining, but you're going to be giving thanks. You're not going to be engaging in gossip and tearing other people down, but you're going to be seeking to build others up. It doesn't mean you sit around and suck on lemons. It means you find joy in real fellowship, in worship, in service and fun activities, whether they're with Christians or non-Christians. But you can do everything to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Teenagers in Christ need to strive for godliness. Young adults, and I'm thinking here particularly singles, need to strive for holiness. You're out of home, out of school. You're on your own, possibly for the first time, working a full-time job, and you have the freedom to decide, how am I going to spend my free time? How am I going to spend my... Uh, my, my uh, disposable income. The world says this is a unique time of life. Don't make too many commitments too quickly. Keep your freedom open. Keep your options open to travel and to engage in all kinds of great opportunities because you'll never get to do that again. But the Apostle Paul says this is a unique time of life. You can be utterly devoted to the service of Christ and not distracted by family responsibilities and you can pour yourself into the service of Christ in his church. And I see way too many young people who are reluctant to do that. I'll, I'll be devoted to the church once I get married and start having kids, but for now I want to kind of keep my options open. Don't wait until you get married to become a faithful steward of that which God has entrusted to you, to be a faithful church member. Now, another alarming trend I've observed among Christian, professing Christian young adults, <clears throat> they've given every evidence of walking with Christ through high school, through college, through college, Involved in campus ministries, involved in church. And yet, once they get out of college and once they're out there on their own, things that were always black and white become negotiable. I've seen young people start dating, and at some point they fall for the reasoning, we're going to get married anyway, and so they engage in premarital sexual involvement. In fact, I've even seen young people professing to be Christians move in together. Not abandoning their profession at all thinking it's perfectly fine because we're going to get married anyway. You know what James says about that? He says, you say tomorrow we're going to go to a city and we're going to do business and we're going to make a profit. He said, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. All such boasting is evil. You should say, if the Lord wills, we will live tomorrow and do such and such. And so there are people who are boasting in an evil manner to justify their evil behavior. Young people, young adults, see through that. Deception and that cloud of confusion that is so prevalent in the day in which we live. Strive to grow in holiness. Young parents need to strive for holiness. How many young, m- young moms and dads find yourself, when I say growing in grace and sanctification, you're just like, <laughs> I feel so tired and defeated, right? You think of the, the, the demands that are placed upon you as a a young husband uh, trying to shepherd and care for your family and provide for your family, or a young mom trying to uh, uh, care for your kids, maybe working outside the home, maybe homeschooling or whatever, and you find yourself burning the candle at both ends. And your peace and your patience and your joy and your love are constantly being tested. You may not have time for long relaxed devotional times like you used to. You may not have time to do the reading that you once enjoyed. Family worship may look a bit chaotic with younger children especially. So it's challenging on many levels. But your children need to see a mom and dad who love Christ. They need to see that Jesus is worth serving with all our hearts. They 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 don't need to grow up thinking Christianity is a shackle that tells me I can't do this and I can't do that and it's really a whole lot like chewing on a lemon. They need to see a joy and a reality in your Christian life. It doesn't mean you are inauthentic in front of them. It means you strive for holiness that's characterized by love and by joy and by peace. You may say that seems impossible some days, and it is, humanly speaking. That's why we're called to strive for sanctification. Adults or in their midlife need to strive for holiness. There are a couple of different dynamics at play in people in their late 40s and 50s. Some, you, you've achieved a particular station in life. The, the goals you set, you've now achieved those goals, and you look back and you th- said, I thought it would be more fulfilling than this. What happened? Or others you realize I am never going to achieve what I've dreamed of achieving. I've been working and working and I realize those dreams are going to die. And in either case, you can find yourself saying, what now? And sometimes people respond with what we call a midlife crisis. They run off and do bizarre things. Like, you know, a 50-year-old guy that, that, that gets his hair dyed and goes and buys a sports car. Uh, but I've seen... Men and women both decide, this marriage is just kind of boring. I think I can find better elsewhere. And their hearts get all messed up because they're not striving for holiness. They've lost sight of the purpose for which God has called them to be like Jesus Christ. It's a great time to take stock. Am I striving to be more like Jesus Christ? Am I seeking to serve Him? If, if the kids have grown and they're out of the house, do you have more time and more freedom to pursue other interests? Are those interests, do they involve serving the Lord Jesus and His church? Do they, are you seeking to know His Word more deeply? Well, there's a point early in our Christian experience, many of us, we, we read ravenously. We read everything we can get our hands on. But now, if you've got more time, are you still reading? Are you still learning? Are you a lifelong learner of the truths of God's Word? Are you seeking more meaningful communion with the Lord? Are you coasting on what has been achieved in the past? Are you seeking meaningful fellowship with others to encourage but also to serve together? Are you striving to grow in grace and holiness? Seasoned saints also need to strive for holiness. You still need to strive for holiness. As you get older, you you tend to slow down a bit, right? Uh, But there's never a time in your life when that moving sidewalk slows down. So if you're not still striving for holiness, you might find yourself losing ground. And as you experience some of the losses and some of the the pain and the aches and the, the, the trials associated simply with aging, it's been said aging is not for sissies, and it's true. Aging can be very difficult. As you experience those challenges and those losses, that's a unique opportunity to draw more fully and deeply upon the the grace and the mercy of our God, to come to know him in a new way, even through the laments at times, to find an intimacy with God that you didn't experience when everything was easy and seemingly going well. It's also an opportunity for more ministry, fewer obligations. I see people who retire, and they just kind of do nothing, and their health generally goes because they do nothing. They quit living. My father-in-law retired in his late 50s and became busier than ever in the service of the church. He was an elder. He was uh, on boards uh, serving various ministries, and and he was involved in countless opportunities of service and supported his wife in her ministries as well. We joke that when uh, my mother-in-law would have Bible studies or, 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 or these fellowship teas where people would come give testimonies. Jim's responsibility was to move the chairs, set up the chairs. But this is a unique time in life, older people, that God can use you in tremendous ways. Older men can mentor younger men. Older women are told to teach younger women. Uh, women. Your body may be a bit slower. Your mind might even be slower. But there's a wisdom gained only three years of walking with Christ that's of great value. And your striving after holiness should never, ever slow down. You and all of us need to run with endurance that race marked out for us to the very end. Now, the one group that is not told to strive after holiness, you know that is? It's people who aren't Christians. And that'd be fruitless. The instruction to unbelievers is come to Christ for Justification. No amount of moral reformation will gain you any favor with God whatsoever. Apart from saving faith in Christ, you can never make yourself holy. So, the starting point for you, if you're not a Christian, is to come to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him. He will not be impressed by your efforts to clean up and reform your life. But he will willingly receive you if you come to him in repentance and faith. And he will enable you to become holy well, finally, how important is this that we strive for holiness? Verse 14 is very clear. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In 1986, the of Truth published a book called No Holiness, No Heaven, based on this very verse. Now, there's a false teaching in our land that, that runs by a lot of different names, but basically uh, it says you can receive Jesus as Savior, and it's optional whether or not you receive him as Lord. It emphasizes faith, but repentance is optional. It promises justification, but sanctification is an add-on for later, if you so choose. Whether it's been called the carnal Christian theory or decisionism, any number of other approaches, it is heresy. It will inoculate people from the gospel because they believe they're converted when they're not. You cannot separate justification and sanctification. Brian Borgman again says, separating saving faith from repentance is a false gospel. Jesus will not be our justifier unless he is also our sanctifier. He saves us from our sins, not in our sins. You now, there's a cultural Christianity that really has very little interest in striving. For holiness. I saw a quote on Facebook just this week. It said, The early church wanted to know, what must I do to be saved? Today's church is asking, What can I do and still be saved? Doesn't that make your heart sink? What can I get away with and still be saved? A true Christian doesn't ask that question. How might I strive to be more like my Savior? Lord Jesus, there's no place for a casual and cavalier attitude about holiness and about sin in the heart of a true believer. Now, again, I want to emphasize holiness is never a condition or a means for salvation. We're saved solely by the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's his perfect righteousness imputed to us and his sacrificial death that takes our sin upon himself. Pastor Mark told us this morning, we ought to memorize, and I would urge you, memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21. I've memorized it in three different translations, so I never get it quite right. But it's basically, for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin laid upon him, his righteousness, and the, the penalty of our sin given to him, and the reward of his righteousness given to us, his people. James strongly asserts, faith without works is dead. Works don't save you, but if faith is not accompanied by works, it's dead. We're not saved by faith and works. We're saved by faith that works. A profession of faith that does not lead to a life of sanctification is not real saving faith. It's an easy believism that saves no one. Again, holiness is not a means of salvation. It's a fruit of salvation. It's the process of working out. The salvation is a necessary evidence of a work of grace in our hearts. Now, there are those who say, oh, the evidence of grace, the evidence that you're really saved is miraculous manifestations, miraculous signs. Jesus makes it clear that's not the case at all. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, those who are enabled and obeying the Lord Jesus, more and more living under righteousness. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? All three of those are miraculous manifestations. And Jesus does not say, no, those were counterfeit miracles. He doesn't respond to it all. He simply says, then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not that I used to know you, but you lost it. It's not that you send away your salvation. You never had it. I never knew you. And the evidence of that is you're still characterized by working lawlessness. And there'll be many who have pinned their hopes on false promises, and they'll be sorely disappointed. On that final day, only those who have a new heart will strive to become holy. Others will chase after all manner of pursuits. Maybe they'll pursue morality. Maybe they'll pursue random acts of kindness. Maybe they'll sign up for all kinds of uh, uh, philanthropic and service-oriented activities. Maybe they will give generously to worthy causes. They're outwardly respectable. They're model citizens. But if they don't walk with Christ, if they're not growing in holiness, they're not his. It's only those who have got a new heart that will strive to become holy. And every single person with a new heart will strive to become holy. Brothers and sisters, (coughs) this is what it means to run with endurance, the race marked out for you. Verse 1 and 2 again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so, clings so closely. In other words, you died to sin, so get rid of it. Put it off. <coughs> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endure the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a race of faith. It's a race that requires endurance. It's a race that necessarily involves growing in grace, laying aside sin, even needless hindrances, those weights he speaks of, of pursuing ever-increasing sanctification, of experiencing deeper, fuller, and richer knowledge of our God through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory.